1: Hello and welcome to Adam Ruins Everything, the podcast. I'm your host, Adam Conover, and you may also know me as the host of Adam Ruins Everything, the TV show, which, guess what, is coming back with an all new season starting July 11th at 10 p.m. Eastern, 9 p.m. Central on True TV. And in the meantime, you can find clips and full episodes at truetv.com slash everything and the Watch True TV app. But on this show, I talk to researchers, academics, and experts about the work they do and why it is so gosh darn cool. And this week, we've got a really, really interesting and different one for you. Today's guest is Jean Twangy. Now, she appears on our upcoming season premiere, which is called Adam Ruins Having a Baby. And in the interview, I'll tell you a little bit about what she talks about on that episode. But the reason she is on the show today is to talk about... About her work on Generations. You might have seen my video on YouTube where I gave a talk called Millennials Don't Exist. That is a talk that Jean firmly disagrees with. So while she was on our set talking about having a baby, we also got talking about Generations and we decided it would be really great to have her come on the podcast so we could talk about it at greater length. The conversation turned out to be really fascinating. We challenge each other a lot. I think you guys are really going to enjoy it. Uh, Jean is a psychology professor at San Diego State University and her work focuses on how cultural changes affect individuals particularly how the younger generations may or may not be different from us she's also the author of a best-selling book called generation me about this topic i'm so excited that jean was able to join us from san diego to talk about this let's just get right to the interview take it away me well jean thank you so much for being here thank you <laughs> so i just want to recap our history together a little bit um about a year and a half ago, I was asked to give a talk at a marketing conference by Turner, the you know parent company of the parent company of the parent company I uh, I, I make my show for, and they said, "Can you give a talk on millennials? Because millennials like your show." And so I said, "Well, okay, I'll do what I normally do. I've always been bothered by the concept of millennials. I've always found it reductive. I think the you know sort of idea of generations overall is a bit of a reductive lens of a way to look at people that's overused. I think it's usually." in my view sort of mostly old people complaining about young people or coming to these very broad conclusions and said, okay, I'll do a talk about that. We did a sort of a quick and dirty version of our research process. Me and another writer, Gonzalo Cordova, did a, uh, you you know, uh, put a talk together. Um, I did it at this marketing conference. Uh, It turned out that they taped it, which I didn't expect them to do. And uh, so I threw it online just because, hey, here's something I did. People can watch. I'm reasonably happy with it. And unbeknownst to me, it went viral. Um, In it, we we make reference to your work. We use a little bit of a clip of you, Um, uh, we make, uh, I hope, some light jokes at at your expense, um, and then we move on. Um, But then about... A year, over a year later, when we were writing our season premiere for this coming season, which is coming back, by the way, on July 11th, for those of you listening, we're doing a topic on having a baby and on the myth that uh, a woman's fertility plummets at the age of 35. And uh, we found, uh, oh, there's someone who's done some really cool work on that and found that that statistic is uh, not very good and based on really old data. And it turned out to be you, the same person whose work I had a little bit uh, flippantly criticized in... A previous talk And uh, I'm not going to go into too much About the uh, about the fertility issue Because we go into that In much greater detail on the show um, It's a really cool story You're really great on the episode And you were very gracious to do it um, But also while we were on set We sort of started talking about The uh, generational issue as well And realized I realized I really wanted To get you on the podcast To discuss our sort of Differing viewpoints on the issue So that's the whole big background And so thank you again For coming on to do this Sure,
2: my pleasure Sure.
1: So, um, uh, let me, let me say, uh, let me ask first of all, uh, what was your reaction to, uh, and by the way, you guys, if, if you go, if you Google Adam Conover, millennials don't exist, you'll, uh, you'll find this video if you want to pause it and watch and come back and listen to this later. Maybe you've seen it already. Uh, Jean, what was your, what was your response to, uh, to that video?
2: Well, it's always a little difficult as a researcher um, when you've uh, done a lot of research. But of course, it's always difficult for everybody talking about it, you know, to go and read all the papers. Um, so what you hope is that the research will, you know, be presented um, in a way that at least gets to what it was intended to. So even though it was a very funny talk, it was frustrating to me as a researcher to see some of the, the work I and others have done on Generations not really represented in the way I thought would, would be more most accurate.
1: Well, I, I, uh, I appreciate that criticism, and let me say, first of all, that I think the way that we, uh, you you know, referred to your work in that talk was a little bit of a rookie error on our part because, um, you know, in general, look, we, we very much try to, uh, on our show and in our process in general, you know, the experts are the heroes of our show, and so we on our best days hope that we're just presenting sort of a, a, you know, broad or relatively uh, accepted sort of expert viewpoint, you know? It's not usually our business to criticize the work of others because uh, you know, you've been studying this subject for decades, I have not, and so I don't consider myself to uh, you know, be able to, of my own power, uh, refute your work, right? And so, uh, I I would hope not to use your work that flippantly if we were to do it again. Um, So, uh, I would love to give you the opportunity if you could uh, yeah, describe what you you feel was not quite represented properly, and how you would represent your work, uh, given your druthers?
2: Yeah, well, that's that's a big question. So it's it's great we have a lot of time to talk about it. So I I think um, we actually have a lot of areas of agreement. So, um, for example, you pointed out that there's no one set definition of what a millennial is, that some people have put the first birth year, it's 1977, and other people have said 1982. Uh, and then there's a, the idea about well, when do they end? Do they end in 1994 or 95 or in 1999? And there's no one consensus. And that's absolutely true. Um, but it doesn't really matter that much where you put the birth year cutoffs. There are still generational differences. Um, when you're born still has a big influence on the kind of life you're going to lead, on your values, on your attitudes. We found on your personality traits um, across the board. So even people who are skeptical of generations would, for example, not make the claim, oh, we live exactly the same way as people did 50 years ago. I think it'd be hard pressed to find anybody who would say that. But there are people who say, well, but generations don't exist or millennials don't exist. Those are two different arguments. So it's true. There's no one definition. The birth year cutoff's, are arbitrary, but there are still differences um, based on when you were born.
1: Right. I, I mean, I would never claim that there's no difference, you know, that that someone who was born in 1950 is going to be the same in every respect as someone who's, you know, like me, born in 1983. And, you know, I sort of say um, a lot of my purpose in in my work is to get people to reexamine the lenses through which they look at, you know, society and the way that we divide up the world. You know, humans, humans divide up the world into categories. Um, I would almost compare this to, for instance, uh, we we've done a, a few segments on dog breeding that people think that dog breeds are sort of Sort of this, you know, thing that exists in nature—that's like this hard and fast category. Whereas, really, this is a this is a framework that we've put on this animal, and we describe them this way. And it actually, the biological basis for it is much much fuzzier than that. Um, so, when I say millennials don't exist, I, I'm not saying you know, okay, there's no there's absolutely no difference at all between people born in different years. But it's that this this idea that you know people come in these packages is sort of a, uh, a human frame that we've added. As a way to look at people, and we have to ask ourselves how useful is it um, but uh, uh, beyond that point of clarification i'm very curious uh, how how do you conduct the uh, research showing the differences between people born in different years what's your sort of process and what is the you know what what are the you know some of the results of of your studies if you know, looking at sort of you know your published research work
2: yeah so most of the time um I look at big nationally representative surveys of young people. There's there's several big uh, surveys of high school students, um, and then there's also um, some of college students, and these tend to go back to the 1960s and 70s. So we can compare uh, baby boomers, Gen Xers, millennials, and then the generation after the millennials, who I call iGen, all at the same age. But we don't usually, when we analyze the data, we're not grouping by generation. We just look at year or maybe every five years and just break it down and see what the change is over this time. And sure enough, just like you said, we don't necessarily find a really fast change, say between Gen Xers and millennials, say people born in, you know, whatever date you want to pick, 1979 versus 1980. Obviously, there's not a huge difference um, based on that, but there is a big difference for example, between people born in, as you said, 1950 and 1983. So that would be people roughly who are boomers and, and uh, the beginning of millennials. So one thing that's uh, good to understand about the way we, we do this research is we're doing surveys of young people themselves. Because it's very common for people to say, oh, you know, generations, isn't that just older people complaining about younger people? Well, Mm -hmm. not in what we're doing. We're looking at what young people say about themselves um, compared to what what, uh, previous generations said when they were the same age. So that's the other crucial piece is, you know, we're not saying, oh, you know, millennials do this. And, well, it's probably because they're young. Well, we can compare millennials when they were young to boomers and Xers at the same age when they were young. So we know it's not age.
1: And where are you getting that, you know, um, I could imagine that, okay, maybe someone's doing this work when Gen Xers were young, but boomers, that was, you know, uh, close to 50 years ago. Where does that data set come from of of what boomers said about themselves then?
2: So uh, there's two surveys that go back where they're capturing at least uh, part of the boomer generation. So there's one of high school students that goes back to 1976. So those late 1970s high school seniors, those are boomers. And then there's another one of college students that goes back to 1966. Um, so there you' you're getting um, most of the the boomers and it's entering college students college student uh, college freshmen so you're getting uh, the beginning of the boomer generation there and then you know using other methods too, if you do um, I've done a few of these where you do a meta-analysis of so that just means you gather you know research done by others and in some of those cases there's some um, psychological questionnaires that have been used for a very long time so there's there's one in particular um, called the Minnesota multiphasic personality inventory. And it's been used since 1938. So you can go even before Mm. the boomers there and look at high school and college students. And we did that.
1: Got it. And so what what sort of
2: changes
1: uh, have you found?
2: So I think it's, it's helpful to start with the big picture of where generations come from in the first place. So generational change happens because cultures change over time people live their lives in different ways, different things are valued, um, people have different attitudes. And what's really changed in the culture over the last 50 to 60 years is more individualism. That's a cultural system that focuses more on the self and less on social rules. And that increasing individualism is what has really shaped the generational change you know, over that time period and has a, had a particular impact on millennials. So, What you'd expect from a generation growing up in a more individualistic culture is that they would see themselves more positively, so they'd have higher self-esteem. At the extreme end, they might have higher narcissism and entitlement, um, that they'd be more likely to think of themselves as above average, have high expectations. Um, You'd also expect more tolerance and equality, because when you treat people as individuals rather than members of groups then you'd get that. Sure enough, that shows up with millennials. The longest chapter in my book, Generation Me, is called The Equality Revolution. That's a change many people seeing as uh, being very positive. Um, And overall, kind of across the board, when you look at these shifts in values and attitudes and how people live their lives... That's kind of the organizing principle that shows up over and over, that millennials are very individualistic generation. So they tend to um, make more individualistic choices and live their lives um, in a more individualistic way and have higher expectations, more positive self-views, but then also more quality, more tolerance.
1: Got it. So, I I mean, you know, I would say (laughs) it's so funny because the framing matters so much, you know, and. And I, and I just want to say again that, you know, the talk that I gave was at a marketing conference, right? And so it was aimed specifically, not even at an internet audience. It was aimed at, you know, 200 marketers in the room. And, and so, you know, I was sort of aiming it at the framework by which they normally, you know, look at, you know, it's like a bunch of, you know, 50 year old guys in suits going like, well, what, are, what are the kids like? You know, like that's. <laughs> Like, that's the, you know, that that's the sort of person who tends to be the most uh, reductive and condescending, right? And so uh, that's why my sort of framing of the entire issue is against that most reductive and condescending viewpoint. But if you were to say to me, hey... As a broad cultural shift, we would all agree. As a broad cultural shift, we can say that America has become more individualistic since 1950. I would say I agree with that because I mean, certainly when I was growing up, I felt like you know I'm 33. I was born. I'm I guess you know by a couple different definitions of millennial. I'm an old millennial. um, That you know I felt like a. uh, a big early conflict in my life was, you know, my uh, individualism versus sort of like systems and rules. You know, that's sort of what punk is about. Right. That was like, uh, you know, that's that's a sort of broad cultural tension. And it feels like a shift that America's gone through. It, it's like a theme in movies and books, you know, individual, you know, every every uh, movie about a princess is about how the princess wants to marry who she wants, not who her dad <laughs> <That's> says, <right. laughs> you know, just like all of those narrative themes um, and then I think you also said you also uh, you published a piece in uh, the conversation about a week ago or a week before us recording this that I, that I really like that sort of uh, uh, you know, list out a lot of your findings that attitudes towards living situations, religious beliefs, sexual behaviors, work life balance, support for same sex marriage. Those have all changed over time. And I think nobody would deny that. Yeah. Um, So I think we could all agree with that. My um, well, here's here's my first question. When when we when you say, okay, we see this as a general change, uh, you know, maybe we don't see it happen all at once, but we see a a slow rise in it over the years as you go from one generation or sorry, as you go from one birth year to another, Mm -hmm. a little maybe a little bit more individualism every year. Then I would ask, what is the point of this generational marker? Like, you said the, you know, that, that, uh, my argument was that the, um, Uh, Was that there's debate over when the years begin or end? That's actually not my argument. My argument is that if if anything, we're looking at a gradual shift, right? So there's Mm -hmm. like any sort of vertical line you put across the graph and say here's where you know one group ends and one group begins seems to me uh, uh, inherently uh, reductive, and you know that is the moment at which like there's an invitation to stereotyping being made. Um, From a scholarly standpoint, is there is there a benefit to? to saying like, here's where one
2: you know generational group begins and one ends. So I think there's there's two different questions. So I'll 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 I'll, t- I'll tackle stereotyping a little bit later. So let's tackle sure. first your excellent question about yeah why do we why do we draw the lines at all? And the the quick answer is convenience. Just like <laughs> with any, I mean it's it's like anything we do in language that we call everything we sit on or not everything, but we call a lot of small things. We sit on chairs, even though they look very different from each other. An office chair so, and a, you know, a, a, a big puffy chair look very different. A dining room chair. They all look different, but we call them chairs. And it's similar if you say, let's say millennials, if we say they're 1980 to 1994. Well, the experience of somebody born in 1980 is going to be pretty different from the experience of somebody born in 1994. The experience of a baby boomer born in 1946 is different from one born in 1964. Absolutely true, because you're absolutely right. The changes are gradual. So whether so when we when we draw those lines and say okay this group is millennials this group is gen x this group is boomers we're putting people born in these 15 to 20 year periods all in one group and that is inherently problematic of course it is because then you know, you're taking all these different experiences and Putting them together. So that's the yeah. first problem is that you're taking people born potentially 20 years apart and putting them in, in the same group when of course they had a different experience with culture. But if you're writing an article, whether it's a scholarly scholarly article or a report for a marketing firm or a journalistic article you're going to have a tough time. Oh, what phrase do you use? Like young people or, but you have to get, you have to talk about people born at a certain time. If you use the phrase like people born between 1980 and 1994, every time you refer to the group, it's really clunky. So it's really just kind of a matter of language and convenience
1: yeah it just it seems like it has such a distorting effect because it creates this illusion that look I mean by the normal generational rubric like I'm a millennial, my parents are baby boomers and their parents are greatest generation and it kind of all fits for my family my my grandfather fought in World war two my mom and my dad were you know uh you know folk musicians <laughs> you know in in uh, the 60s and uh and you know i'm uh, uh of the internet age that all makes sense but our use of those terms creates the illusion that like Everybody falls into those twenty-year period, you know, into these sort of like small periods that, like, every millennials' parents are about the same age, and everyone and their grandparents are about the same age. But there are, you know, there are millennials now who have children who are also classified as millennials or there's, you know what I mean? Like there's, uh, it creates the illusion that people cluster in, in a way in which they don't. But, uh, I see at the same time that, you know, at the end of the day, we, we are a species that, that gives group names to things. And when you have to refer to a cohort, you have to refer to them somehow. Uh, it, it just, it almost seems like the, uh, the original sin of how maybe, good work uh, gets turned into, uh, you know, way down the line, sort of reductive uh, jargon, you know?
2: Yeah. And I think that a similar problem arises with, you know, you mentioned stereotyping, and I think that also ends up um, occurring. And I don't think it's because, I mean, As we just talked about, we know from this data based on young people themselves that there are these differences. Almost everybody agrees, yes, you know, the culture is different now. And yes, it has an effect on people. But where people get upset is when they say some of these, say, let's say the older marketers that you're talking about who are going to say, oh, you know, but that means all millennials are this way. Well, that's not a problem with the data. That's a problem with the people who are trying to interpret it and are, in my opinion, doing it wrong. That's that's stereotyping. That should not be done. You have to acknowledge and this is this thing is the thing is this is true of any study of group differences. It's actually true of almost every, any scientific study period. You know, if you're doing a drug trial and you're looking at people who get the drug versus people who get the placebo, and you report your results, you're reporting the average for each group, even though there's a lot mm-hmm. of variation within it. And the same is true for studying generations. Even if you do look at one birth cohort, like one year, as opposed to a generation, of course, there's still people born in 1983. There are some people who are very outgoing and some people who aren't. There are people who spend, you know, 20 hours a week on uh, Facebook and there's people who don't use it at all. There's lots and lots of variation. And of course, people differ in ways other than generation too. So there's lots of variation. Um, But that observation doesn't undermine the fact that there are average differences. But given the average differences, that doesn't mean you can generalize to everybody. That's the definition of stereotyping, and that that is not a good way to go.
1: Yes. And and I would say and I just you know, just to, to clarify the error that I think I made in, in our talk. Um, I don't think it was fair or warranted to sort of rope you into that discussion and say, "Hey, here's you know, this is someone who's also perpetrating stereotyping," because or to impugn your work in that way. Because you know, honestly, that was uh, uh you know, we were telling tales out of school if we if we gave that implication. Uh, so I'm glad that we're able to make that distinction because you know, like I said, I think we I, I have a lot of point. Like, I think your work is very interesting, and there's a lot of uh points of it that that I find enlightening. Um, and I don't want to you know lump it into that larger error i do want to ask though uh how do you know that uh because uh, speaking to the to the diversity of millennials one of the things we talked about in our talk is you know um millennials are demographically uh an extremely demographically diverse generation mm-hmm. right? just in terms of the the number of them that were uh born uh in other countries or are first generation immigrants or second generation. i always forget which is first and which is second <laughs> you know the they're the children of immigrants yeah. right uh etc um Along the lines with how America is demographically becoming uh, more diverse, uh, the youngest generation is as well. Um, is there, a, a, you know, a chance? Because uh, I, I don't know exactly what your sample was. Um, that you know, you were potentially sampling like oh, the sort of white middle class kids who are you know closest at hand, or does this does your work you do you feel it also includes first language Spanish speakers mm-hmm. in uh, New Mexico mm-hmm. and uh, you know. Uh, you know Chinese kids in flushing et cetera does it is it really go across all those groups
2: it it does so you know in the in the early days um and and for some of the longer questionnaires, we started out by looking at college students at four-year universities who are still diverse but are not as diverse as the general population. But also pretty early on from some of the first publications, I also made an effort to go find samples of um, children or middle school students uh, or high school students. And then in the last 10 years or so, almost everything that I've published has instead been from these large nationally representative data sets. So what does that mean? Nationally representative means that they make an effort to find Um, survey respondents who are going to fit that demographic profile of the country, that it's, you know, several, and they get thousands of people to fill these out every single year, uh, about 15,000 in the high school survey every year Mm. in each grade. And they want to make sure that those 15,000 kids look like the 12th graders everywhere and the 10th graders everywhere who, in terms of ethnicity, socioeconomic status, region of the country, Immigrants, everything. the The folks who do these um, surveys are very careful to make sure that that's the case. So that means that their surveys, can represent all of those diverse groups. So the second step in answering that question is to look at the generational trends within those groups. You know, Do these trends show up across different ethnic groups, socioeconomic status groups, regions, and so on? And so um, my colleagues and I have done that in um, these analyses and found that the generational trends are actually remarkably similar across these groups. They tend to show up across all ethnicities, regions of the country, both uh, boys and girls, men and women, um, mm-hmm. at socioeconomic status groups, and across the board. And there's very few exceptions to that. The one exception is we find some pretty um, big trends uh, generationally for religious belief and practice. But those tend not to show up for Black Americans, and they do for uh, those of other ethnicities. But that's pretty much it. Almost everything else, the trends look really, really similar. Um, whether it's trends in, you know, becoming more tolerant or positive self views or materialism, whatever it is, the trends look really, really similar.
1: That's really interesting. Well, so my my. Um... Uh, Follow-up question to that 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 leads into me nicely to another question that I had when we were talking about those general cultural changes about the role of religion in people's lives or people being tolerant of of different living arrangements, etc. Do we only see those in the younger generation? Because when I think about – you know, acceptance of same sex marriage, for instance, or of or of, uh, you know, other living situations. Uh, look, my grandparents are certainly not as accepting of uh, same sex marriage or of, you know, me and my uh, partner of eight years cohabitating, even though we're not married. Right. But they're not as accepting as I am. But they are more accepting than they were 10 years ago. Right. You know what I mean? Like, they are like, they do treat, uh, my, uh, uh, partner Lisa like a member of the family, even though we're not married. They say, hey, you know what, you're, you kids do what, what's good for you. I've seen, uh, I've sort of sensed that the country itself, You know, I'm sure the older people lag behind, but they've gone through a transformation as well. And so um, my question is, sometimes it seems like when we're talking about, oh, millennials, younger people are like this, a lot of the things that we say about them. Uh you know one category of things we say at them are things that old people say about young people but another category seems to be we're saying things that are true of the society in general that old that younger people just exhibit a little bit more like you know like I talk and say in our talk like they're always on our phones well everyone's always on right, phones right. my my mom is on fa- my mom is on social media more than I am yep. like i uh uh you know and so uh a lot of these transformations seem to be universal do you but do you find in your data i mean are you do you compare them to uh, to older folks to see if, if we're seeing the same trends or or what?
2: Yeah, so um, I've started just in the last five years or so um, taking a more careful look at that using, there's this data set called the General Social Survey. It's one of the best known surveys in sociology, and it goes back to 1972. So it's of adults 18 and over in the U.S. And um, because it's of many ages over many years, you can look at that very question. There are a number of, um, statistical techniques to try to see, is this something that is changing among everybody? That's called a time period effect. So that's what you're referring to. Or is it pe- something that's just changing among people who are you know, of a certain generation? So that's called a cohort effect. You know, cohort's another word for, for generation it just means, you know, birth cohorts, people born in one year. Um, so that's, that's, the, that's the question, and it depends. Um, you see both in the things we've been able to look at in that data set, which is a, a shorter list of things than we've been able to look at in the data sets where everybody's the same age. But still, um, same-sex marriage is a really great example. So if you look at attitudes towards same-sex marriage, both things have happened. There has been a time period effect that people of all ages have shifted in their opinion. But just as you said, if you look at people right now at one moment in 2017, you will still see a generation gap that millennials and iGen are still much more likely to support same-sex marriage and other LGBT tolerance issues than people who are older. Um, And it's a pretty linear progression. Um, For for it to be people being older, you'd have to think, well, people are going to oppose same-sex marriage the older they get. And maybe that happens. But most of that is going to be the generational effect of being born in 1920 versus being born in 1990. You're going to have a different attitude. And so both of those things happen You're exactly right so some of these things that people focus on as generational differences some of them are purely time period that it's just everybody has shifted in that direction so being on your phone might be one example of that although there's probably still a generational difference in that to an extent sure. too um, it's almost always both and there are, there are some, there's some, been some debate back and forth um, in academia around this issue of, you know, well, if you can't separate all the influences, you know, how do you really know? Well, if it's time period or generation, it's cultural change. You know, to me, age is the bigger problem, that if, you're, if you see something among millennials and it's just due to their age, well, they'll grow out of it, and then they're the same as young people were 10 years ago, and then it doesn't matter. So time period and generation are both cultural change, but... It is true that in that case if it's all-time period then it's not truly a generational difference anymore instead it's something that's affected everybody and then you wouldn't expect any kind of generation gap at any one time but those still exist in a lot of things.
1: Yeah, it's it's really interesting because it it seems like we're talking about a you know, there's a lot look, there's many 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 ways that a tw- many many reasons that a 20 year old is going to be different from a 50 year old you know um uh, some of them are biological some of them are cultural some of them are uh you know because they were raised a different way uh, maybe it, it seems like it's it's extraordinarily difficult to pick to pick out which is which and which is for which reason but uh, you know i think part of the problem maybe or part of my difficulty with the generational label is it seems to all collapse those into uh, one reason it's like, well, you were brought up this way or you were born this way. So you're going to you're going to be like that. You know what I mean? Whereas, like, uh, you know, sometimes it's it's because, well, this is how young people are. Sometimes it's because uh, the culture has changed. And it's, it's a little bit. And sometimes it is, you know, hey, it really is Uh, this. You know, I don't know. This person saw, you know, September 11th on TV when they were 10 years old and it changed their attitude for the rest of their lives, <laughs> you know, or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, And it, it seems it seems difficult to pull those things apart
2: and And it is I mean especially if you're looking at any one individual, there are so many different influences, so that's that's why you know obviously I love data, so that's why it's great to use data on you know I draw from data sets all told of eleven million people, and wow. then you got a lot of data and you got a lot of ways that they're going to vary, and you can zero in on okay, what are the generational differences, Try to take age out as much as you can and zero in on how those cultural changes have really affected people. And it does tend to be that more general thing of cultural change rather than just events. Like you mentioned September 11th. And of course, things like that have an effect on people. But that tends to be, unless you were directly affected by your family or friends, it tends to be more um, that the culture as a whole really has an influence on people rather than specific events. It's more that if you were... Brought up, just to come back to the example of same-sex marriage, you would come brought up with the attitude of, oh, you know, there's gay and lesbian people out there. That's what some people do. That's cool. You're going to have a different attitude from someone who was brought up either not hearing about it at all because everybody was in the closet or hearing about active discrimination and this is something, you know, we don't do and nobody's supposed to do that and that's wrong. That's what has an influence on people Um, and not just in that attitude in everything in terms of their expectations, what they expect to get out of life. And, you know, are they um, going to get married when they're 22 as opposed to when they're 35? All of these things have changed a lot.
1: Yeah, it's so and it's so hard to pull out the cause and effect. Like you could say, if we're talking about the acceptance of same-sex marriage, uh, just because you, you know you put this in uh, put this in my mind, you know the rise of individualism as a, as a broad cultural shift um, is certainly one explanation for why it would be oh yeah, hey man, cool, you do you kind of right, like exactly. permeating the culture. But I could also say it's because of the of the incredible success of of you know the deliberate political campaign of coming out as a political device right um as uh hey this is you know it, we're going to come out into the open and and say hey you know we're here and and uh please treat us like people and you know to me my acceptance of of uh of uh, same sex uh, individuals came from having a friend in high school I, there was exactly one uh out uh lesbian in my high school who was a good friend of mine and because of that experience you know uh i i you know had that had that acceptance that's Something that wouldn't have happened 10 years prior. And it was because of this sort of, uh, you know, is that because uh, of the shift towards individualism or is it because of this social movement? Um, uh, uh, it's, it's hard to say.
2: Yeah, it is. I mean, actually, that kind of brings up a, a larger question of with any of these generational or cultural changes, answering the question of why this happened is always harder than identifying mm-hmm. the changes themselves. Um, you know, in, in comparison, identifying the changes is relatively easy. you know You go and look at these big surveys, here's the changes in attitudes. Maybe we can take age out and then see what's left. Here's what we have, here's the pattern. People are more accepting of same-sex marriage now. But why that happened? Always harder to answer. Um, to really answer why a change happened, you'd have to do... Uh, a true experiment which you can't do of generations Hmm. you can't say you be born in 1983 and you be born in 1950 and let's see what happens you know with a big group of people it's literally impossible so given that you have to just kind of do the best you can which is to say okay what else changed at the same time would it make sense that these are related or do we have data showing that these two things are related and then let's take a look and that's about as good as we can get um I'm always asked uh, when I talk about my generation to research, well, why did this happen? And so you can look at what changed at the same time, but it is very difficult to say for sure, this is exactly what caused it. Um, and anybody who tells you, oh, we can know for sure, nope, you can't really. Um, you just have to go on what you have and make a good educated guess. So in this case, I think it's very plausible that it's both. It's this over you know this overarching shift toward individualism. Um, and then, maybe spurred on through that these social movements of for example people coming out and then everybody's like oh I didn't think I knew anybody who was gay and now I do and hey they're yeah. cool and I like them and that changes attitudes in a, in a personal way well I'm here talking to
1: Professor Jean Twangy we'll be back in just a moment so please stick around <laughs> Hi, everybody. I'm Justin McElroy. And I'm
2: Dr. Sydney McElroy. Every
1: week, we release a medical history podcast called Sawbones.
2: We go over the history of the dumbest, grossest, weirdest stuff humans have been doing to each other since the dawn of mankind. But it's a funny show. But it's also so disgusting and stomach-turning, you won't believe it.
1: But it's also, like, <laughs> funny. It's funny.
2: It is the wildest, grossest, nastiest stuff you can imagine.
1: It's a real hoot. It's called Sawbones, and we release it every week on iTunes, wherever podcasts are sold, and right here on MaximumFun.org. <laughs> Welcome back to Adam Ruins Everything, the podcast. I'm here talking to psychology professor Gene Twangy about generational differences and our differences on that topic. You know, when everything that you say about, hey, here's the phenomenon I see when we do the surveys, it all sounds uh, totally plausible to me. The problem is... Uh, when, uh, you know, so much of the conversation about generations um, and about the media narrative. And really, that's what our talk is aimed at a, against is the media narrative is around this idea of, you know, uh, I mean, I think the clip that we used from you in the show. And honestly, we used it mostly because it was a good clip that set up a joke. That, that's, by the way, when informational comedians, that's why we use clips because it sets up a joke. <laughs> it's the only reason, you know, so that's uh, uh, was, uh, you know, well, kids these days are more narcissistic, uh, maybe because they got that particular Participation yeah. Trophy, you right. know, right. And and that's the part that I think makes uh, makes people of my generation go like, hey, no, co-
2: no, it isn't. Come on. That's so that's so reductive. And uh, yeah, and, uh, and, uh, and I agree. I mean, obviously, I was interviewed about it. Obviously, I talked about it as one possible reason, um, you know, and this is this is where of course, it's always difficult. I mean, you, you walk the same line between having the data and then, you know, when you're being interviewed. Well, is it possible this is one of the causes? <laughs> sure, it's possible. But can I prove yes. that? No. But yes. they don't want to hear that on TV.
1: Uh, you know, I mean, look, the – in my mind, the reason our video did well, and the, and you know, I didn't expect it to. I was like, "Hey, I'm throwing it online because maybe maybe you know someone will see this and ask me to, to do another talk one day." Um, uh, the reason it did well is is apparently um, a lot of uh, people of my generation are annoyed by the same things I'm annoyed by, yeah. right? Um, uh, and you know, hear all this stuff, saw that Newsweek cover, the me 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 generation. They saw it and they thought, "Oh fuck you," just like <laughs> I did. You know, they're like, "How how dare you? You don't know me at all. Right. And you know the the participation trophy thing is the ultimate example of that, where it's like this thing that like, you know, guys, you know, old guys complain about on ESPN, uh, and that dads grumble about, uh, on Thanksgiving that has, you, you know, but it, it's actually, people actually give it cause a weight. There are really people who think that, you know, the reason that, uh, you know, that, that, uh, my kid's a narcissist. And the reason why is he was applauded just for showing up, um, which, uh, uh, you know, is, uh, is, is condescending. That's all. That's my, <laughs> that's yeah, all I'm well, saying.
2: Look, I'm, a, I'm, I'm a Gen Xer in the early nineties when I was in my twenties and people were talking about what Gen, Gen Xers were, but he's like, well, they were black all the time and they're slackers. I'm like, well, I'm not a slacker and I don't wear black. So I've been there. I know, you know, what that feels like. And I, I totally understand that a lot of millennials are saying, this isn't who I am. And I think that's, I mean, obviously that's true. You're not going to, and not everybody's going to be the average. Uh, and then you're right. There's this other layer of, of, characterization of like what exactly happened. But, you know, I've found when I, when I've given talks, um, on, on generation, me on my book and some of the, some of the data and so on to millennial audiences. And they and some of them who have read the book, they they'll, they'll kind of start out with their arms crossed, which I totally get. I had people tell me I actually You started out kind of reading the book very skeptical but then they start to recognize some of these things that, that they experienced in their childhood and some of the values and some of the individualism and so on and it, often by the end they, they are relatively convinced they may say well I know I'm not this way and I always make that clear it's not going to fit everybody but they definitely recognize these themes of individualism especially when they're put in a more positive light like things about tolerance and equality the thing is when you do research on the positive end and on equality, nobody covers it. Because I've done that. <laughs> I've done that yeah. on stuff on, say, gender roles relatively recently, and you hardly get any coverage at all. You do something negative, it gets all kinds of coverage. And I think the reason is you have – because you are talking about the thing with dads and so on. Some of this is – so I have, I have three kids. I'm a parent. And once you become a parent, you want to try to start figuring out how can I not screw them up. So you're focused on some of the negative things because you want how to know how your kids maybe can avoid that. Like, how, what can I mm-hmm. do so my kid doesn't turn out that way? So that's what's behind a lot of this fascination of the older generation with some of these trends. Because the three questions I'm always asked is, what did you find? Why did you find it? And what can we do about it? And if it's positive, <laughs> yeah. there's no what can we do about it. It's like, say, Yay. Pat ourselves on the back. But if it's a negative thing, then they can ask that third question of what can we do and what can we do differently? And I think that's, that's what, what often gets that media narrative going.
1: Right. I, I mean, that's uh, so yeah, that sort of brings me to one of my larger questions, because, you know, what what I try to do on my show a lot of the time is try is I try to break down these large cultural narratives about why we do things, mm-hmm. you know, um, and question them. And um, the idea that young people are lazy, right, is such a built in. It's such a built in like human narrative. And that's why we went back through time and found like, hey, here's when the, you know, quote, greatest generation called the baby boomers lazy and entitled. And here's when no, they you know, been.
2: I mean, the baby boomers might have been lazy and entitled compared to the greatest generation. They probably were.
1: Exactly. <laughs> and it, it sort of it, it fits into a uh, but it, but it also fits into this narrative of like, you know, hey, I'm old. I've worked. I went to war and you're young and, uh, you know, you don't have anything. <laughs> you know what I mean? You're and you're uh, you, you're looking for a handout. That's sort of like a. Uh, a, a sort of built-in way that people are going to feel, and that's that can come out in a media narrative, right? Um, like it it it's appealing to us for that reason. Uh, you know, for the same reason that uh, uh, you know, you open the New York Post and you see the same sort of built-in story that appeals to people that is in the paper over and over again. You know, you can sort of track what the what the story is, and and uh, 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 you know, generationally, uh, in terms of what what we tell ourselves societally about about the generations. I feel like it's a similar, you know, same as it ever was. This is the sort of like story that feels good to us internally. My, my question is, I I wonder if some of the because, look, I, I know you're extremely uh, uh, very present in the media on this issue um, and and your work has, uh, you know, uh, Generation Me was a bestseller and, and you know, you're often quoted on this subject. Do you do you have any fear that the reason uh, it, it's spread so far is because it sort of fits with this narrative that isn't Really related to your work? Does that make sense?
2: Yeah, I think I, I know what you mean. I think I think some of these findings do get greater play, because they fit what everybody is thinking. Mm-hmm. And sometimes, but, but here's the interesting thing, sometimes the findings get play because they don't fit with what everybody's thinking. So for mm-hmm. example, we had a paper about a year ago, um, showing that uh, millennials are actually less sexually active. They're less likely to um, be having sex in their early twenties um, compared to previous generations at the same age. They have fewer sexual partners. That completely goes against the media narrative of the Tinder generation, hookups, and and mm-hmm. so on. And that ended up getting a lot of attention because people thought it would go the other direction. So did I, honestly. It was it was a little bit of a surprise analyzing that data. But we looked at it, kind of we cut that data every way we could, um, and still found the same result. You know, several times. And this was the General Social Survey. Survey, and it, you know it was still there. So sometimes it's because it's surprising. Sometimes it's because it fits that straightforward thing of you know this is the, the criticism that people have, and you know. But some sometimes it goes the other way. So I think it just depends.
1: Yeah, it, it's just such a. You know, it's such a tricky uh, issue because I feel like, again, your you know, your work seems very straightforward. And, you know, based on these uh, uh, sort of surveys and look, I, I would never presume to question your your methodology or your work because it's not my field. And, and you know, I, I, I think it's uh, must have withstood the, the test of time. But uh, the the degree to which the the media, because it fits the narrative, can sort of spin it and gin it up into this thing that's beyond itself is is something that uh Uh, You you know, is uh, I I sort of consider it my job to (laughs) watch out for, I suppose.
2: Yeah. And it's it it is interesting how it's always the negative stuff that gets the coverage, you know, whether it's surprising or not. It's always the negative stuff. So we had a paper on um, on change over time in attitudes around gender roles. And we found on almost every single question, millennials were more supportive of working mothers, you know, less supportive of of. you know, very traditional setups and so on. There was one, you know, one or two items that went the other direction out of like 25, where um, there was actually a little more support among millennials for traditional roles between men and women in the home. We didn't play that up very much because they were they were smaller than the other ones. Um, they were the exception. And then so And we got a little bit of press coverage for this paper, but not a whole lot. Then you know what happens a few months ago. Someone else analyzes the exact same data sets that we did and focuses on those two items that go in the other direction towards more tradition. And that ends up in the New York Times and goes everywhere. I saw that. Yes. And those, those are, yeah, two items out of about 25 and the other 23 go the other way. Huh. In that case, it was because it cut against that prevailing narrative so Exactly. Much. But it was also negative. And that's I think that's part of it, too. So it's it's both positive and not and not particularly surprising that millennials would be more supportive of working mothers. Nobody wanted to cover that. But if it's, oh, they actually support more traditional roles, then that gets coverage. And by the way, that's in the in just in the last two years or so, that's that's turning around and that's not even going to be true very soon. And it was so small to begin with.
1: Really, so so you're saying that that finding was just a little sort of eddy in the stream that yeah, that is about it looks to... like.
2: Well, you know, it's real, it's there. I mean, I, we found it too. Um, it's just yeah, there. And again, the why question, when I'm not exactly sure why those two items went the other direction. Somebody, some people think it's because they were the only ones that mentioned men's roles. So maybe everybody's mm. okay with women working and they know that has to happen. But, you know, maybe men should be men again. Maybe that's in there. So, yeah, it's definitely there. It's just it wasn't as half as big as the change in the um, items being more about being more supportive for working moms. Well, so speaking of
1: speaking of negative things, I know that, you know, you're sort of in the past have been known for describing uh, millennials as being more narcissistic Mm -hmm. um, than uh, other generations. We've spoken on this conversation so far about millennials perhaps being more individualistic. um, Because, look, when you say millennials are more individualistic, I'm a lot more like, oh, yeah, hey, maybe that does describe me when it's narcissistic. I'm like, hey, no. Uh, Hold on a second. Right? Um, but, you know, Grandpa certainly loves to hear that. You know, <laughs> Bill O'Reilly loves to say that millennials are. Well, not are, anymore. Uh, more Bill resistant. O'Reilly
2: doesn't get to say much of anything anymore. <laughs> Fair point. Fair point.
1: Uh, Well, grandpa still believes it. Um, Yes. My uh, my question is, do you, you know, is that a shift you've made in your work or do you do you really feel that the the idea that millennials are are narcissistic, um, you know, capital N, does that does that hold up or or what is your basis for that?
2: Yeah. Well, you know, the individualism framing actually came first. I did a lot of work on those individualistic traits and so on before I ever, um, you know, ended up looking at narcissism. So. Narcissism is basically extreme individualism. It's like if you take mm-hmm. individualism and then really kind of run with it and end up in a place where you think you're the greatest person in the world and you know you can abuse everybody else, that's that's where you end up with. But, right. you know, it's on a continuum. Narcissism varies from just having a little bit to having a lot, and there's a standard Inventory to measure called the narcissistic personality inventory. Well, that hasn't been included in any of those big data sets that we've been talking about. So we went and found um, it was in the first study. I think we had like 15,000, 20,000 college students who'd filled it out across about 100 different samples from 1982 uh, to, let's see, the most recent paper. I think we updated it to 2007. Uh, no wait, 2009 maybe, and we found over that time period that scores on that narcissism um, inventory uh, increased on average uh, among college students. It wasn't a huge, huge increase, um, but you know, for people who are scoring high, say, um, who answered the majority of the questions in the narcissistic direction, that moved from about 17% in the early 80s to um about 30% by 2008-2009. Hmm. So that's a noticeable shift. It's not enormous. It notice that that's not a majority of people um, in the generation. So it has been um distressing to see people say, "Oh, you're saying all millennials are narcissistic." Nope, not what I'm saying. <laughs> the average has moved up um on this scale. The other interesting thing which we're looking at right now is what happened around 2008? Well, the recession hit. That may have had an impact. So we're trying to update that um, to try to hmm. see what happened after the recession. Um, so I'm speaking today just about that that data from early 80s to about 2008 or so. That's what we find is, is that increase. And um, so that shows up in this nationwide meta-analysis. It shows up with um, data from specific college campuses as well couple other people have found it too. And then we find it in a lot of things that correlate with narcissism that aren't exactly the same thing but have some overlap. Things like uh, being very materialistic or thinking that you're above average compared to other people. And those show the the same patterns.
1: So I, I know that there's some disagreement though about like that, that narcissistic personality inventory about that being – uh, you know, uh, an apt way to judge There's narcissism. In actually
2: within the field. Really? That's if you're going to measure narcissism, 80% of the research papers use that scale. And it's not my scale. I'm not attached to it. I didn't invent it. It's just mm-hmm. the scale that's used. That's why we looked at it in our meta analysis is because it had the most data. So I know that there have been some people out there criticizing it, but the people who are in the field who actually study narcissism were like, what are they talking about? <laughs>
1: okay, fair enough. I, I just, uh, you know, my, uh, I guess I'm just curious about that framing, right? Because like the the characteristics that you list there sound to me like you know, if you were to, you could draw a different circle around them and say, Hey, that's the, the self-esteem, uh, you know, uh, personality scale. And I'd be like, Oh yeah, well that's a very, that's a very positive way to frame a lot
2: of those same, uh, characteristics. Is it not? Yeah. So, you know, narcissism is a funny, funny trait. It's very comf- <laughs> complex. Um, that's why it's fascinating, but that's also why there's a lot of uh, misinformation out there about it. Cause it has a lot of positive things. People who score high in narcissism are outgoing and extroverted. They, um, tend to be charming at least at first they have high self-esteem they have self-confidence these all sound good right Um, and that but that's only part of it if you have just those you're probably not high in narcissism but if you have that and um, you have a really outsized desire to be rich and famous and you are okay with manipulating other people and you like to seek a lot of attention you think that you're special and that you th- and if you think you know if other people insult you that you should immediately you know react with aggression whether that's verbal or physical that's when it starts to cross over into being more maladaptive and mm-hmm. you can't really have narcissism with just the positive stuff and because people have said that oh you know but there's this positive stuff yeah there is that's why it's such an interesting trait. It's that it has these positive things, but then it also has these negative things. So there's this, in uh, personality psychology, we talk about the big five personality traits. And narcissism is high extroversion. So that's positive emotion, outgoing, charming. That's the quote, good things. And low agreeableness. So that's like how well you get along with other people. How, basically how much of a jerk you are. And that's what narcissists are. They're charming jerks. They're outgoing jerks. <laughs> there are people who have these good qualities and they want to be leaders, but they don't make good leaders because they're jerks.
1: <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, it, it's funny because I, I, uh, I identify with like about uh, I'm, you're listing all these different traits and I'm like, I identify with half of those. And so I'm hoping I'm not a narcissist. Uh, and hey, I we're, just...
2: we're having this conversation, so I don't think so.
1: <laughs> and I just I okay, mean, right, because,
2: you know, ha- having that ability to say, OK, you know, I may, may have been wrong about this and let's talk about it. Right there. You know, that's something that, you know, most people score very high in narcissism, they wouldn't even consider doing that.
1: I mean, let let me ask, have you um, just speaking about your work and its interaction with the media and sort of the, you know, the issue with the negative things leading and the stuff that fits this narrative and how, you know, narcissism sort of has a strange interaction with that. Have you adjusted the way that you frame uh, your work at all in response to Uh, sort of that interaction between how the media takes it and then how people respond to it. I'm just curious because, you know, uh, science communication is obviously, uh, you know, something that I'm I'm very interested in. And and so it seems like you you uh, have had a little bit more of a push pull with the meaning of your work uh, in the media than uh, most researchers in in any field would have.
2: Yeah. I mean, mostly what it's done is, I've, I've just decided I'm going to do one more paper on narcissism. I'm going to update that previous one and then I'm done,
0: even (laughs) though it's a
2: really, really fascinating topic. And my, my co-author, um, Keith Campbell, I wrote the narcissism epidemic book with, he still does work on narcissism. I'm going to leave it to him and all of the other folks, (laughs) because I'm more interested in the general question of cultural change and how it affects people. And especially for this generation coming up, for iGen, after the millennials, narcissism isn't the story for them anyway, I don't think. I think it's smartphones and the effects of smartphones and mental health. So I have a new book coming out. Um, It's called iGen. It's out on August 22nd. And I I think I maybe have a couple sentences about narcissism in there. And my editor was like, oh, put in more because everybody loves that. I'm like, nope. I'm done with it, Um, you know, because it it is so confusing and there's so many myths and misinformation about there. you know, let's let's talk about something else, because there's so many more interesting stories generationally than this. So that's been my main reaction.
1: Sure. So what have you uh, uh, found? uh, I mean, tell me about uh, about iGen, Uh, you know, knowing that I'm still I'm still a bit of a skeptic of of putting people in these categories. (laughs) I'm still curious what your research has found about the influence of smartphones on
2: people. Yeah. So, you know, we've been talking about how these generational changes tend to be gradual and linear and they keep building on on themselves. And that I got used really used to seeing graphs that look that way. Um, And then that changed. Um, In these big data sets around 2011 or 2012, I started seeing these really big changes. And at first I was like, okay, it's just a blip. Let's see what happens. But we have data up there about 2015, 2016 now in these data sets. And nope, there was a really big change around that time. So that's what makes me think that there may be, and actually not as quite as arbitrary a break um, as some of the previous ones between millennials and iGen around those born about 1995 ninety five also happens to be the year the internet was commercialized and if you think about people born in that year they um, had a smartphone for their whole adolescence and mm-hmm. then we're seeing these big changes in mental health um and you know other other things showing up other changes are gradual the other things shaping this generation, but there's been some you know that are that are really sudden around that so that's what really prompted me to to write the book and it's uh got You know, 10 core chapters about 10 different things that are, that are shaping this group. And not all of them, but a lot of them end up coming back to that experience of spending your whole adolescence with that, with that smartphone in your hand.
1: I'm so curious. You mentioned you mentioned mental health a couple times. Is there a, is there a surprising finding in that you know a, a change in in mental health for for folks from that cohort?
2: Yeah. So I'm I'm still working on on, on some of these analyses, but there's some stuff out there right right now um, that other folks have published that points in this direction too. So um, right around 2011 or 2012, the suicide rate for teenagers started to go up. There's a paper in pediatrics about Mm. um, major depressive disorder. It's the most severe form of depression among teens. Um, This big data set, the American Freshman Survey, finds these really big increases in mental health issues starting around that time. You know, things are stable or even improving, you know, over millennials, at least in some indicators of mental health, and then, really suddenly, right around 2011 or 2012, things got a lot worse. And as we were just talking about, answering that why question is always difficult. So that's what I'm trying to do right now. I, and I can't do the experiment. So <laughs> I'm trying to take a two-step process. Number one, does it look like these mental health issues are correlated with um, spending a lot of time on social media and online? And then second, do they change at the same time? So that's what I'm working on now.
1: Huh? And you're confident that's not because of some difference in the way diagnoses diagnoses are being given out or anything like that? Yeah,
2: good question. So the surveys um, are they all ask the same questions, and then the major depressive disorder one. Um, It used it did use the same um, criteria and the same definition. And it's not like people going to seek help. This was a national screening study. So we know it's not it's not due to more people seeking help. It's they do the screening study with a national representative sample and they go and see, you know, if the teens uh, fit the the same criteria. And they've done that since 2005. And things were pretty stable Hmm. until 2011. And then they went up.
1: That's fascinating. Um, well, uh, let me let me close with this. Uh, you, you know, one of the things you talk about on our show, because, again, when you came on the show to talk about fertility, and I really hope uh, people are really going <laughs> to enjoy that segment because it's a fascinating story that we didn't even talk about today. Yeah. But um, uh, I'm really looking forward to uh, uh, folks seeing it. But we talk about how you had uh, uh, three kids of your own in your uh, in your late 30s. Have <laughs> you and how old are they now? They are
2: 10, 7 and 5.
1: And do you do you feel like you detect generational differences in them? I mean, are you are they your own little test subjects?
2: Or? <laughs> well, um, what I'm trying to do is protect them from some of the more negative things Um so, because for for example, there's there is a tendency for kids to have a screen in their hand all the time, and there's more and more evidence suggesting that's maybe not the best idea. So we did mm-hmm. that for a while. They each had their had their own, um, and then after I started analyzing some of the data for the book, I, I I literally got up, gathered them up, and put them in my dresser and took <laughs> them away. Um, and. I am a little bit of a mean mom, but not in that way. They actually hardly even noticed. I was actually kind of surprised. Oh, wow. So that was, that was kind of a pleasant surprise. I really didn't get much pushback from them on, on that. They kind of got used to it. I get a lot more pushback when I have them do things like help fold the laundry. That's not a big hit. Um, <laughs> yeah, but, and, and that's not a generational change. No, it's no not. One, that no, part, no, absolutely, no. Kid wants to do no. That. I, think, I think kids have, have, have always been like, oh, do I have to? Um, <laughs> yeah the the good thing the good news is now the good change in parenting is when they do that we don't smack them in the face even if we want to we have uh, better better parenting techniques now we may overindulge our kids too much um, but there's some really good changes in parenting too we uh, we have more empathy for our kids we you know get to know them a little bit better and more likely to play on the floor with them when they're younger um, and uh, there's not as much distance um, between parents and kids so that part is nice but I also do think that there's some good things about some of the more old-fashioned ways of doing things. Of yes, I'm not your friend. I am your parent, and yes, mm-hmm. you need to eat your dinner. And no, you can't have a special dinner. And no, it can't be cookies.
1: <laughs> uh, well, look, I can't argue. As someone who, you know, my goal is also to understand the world around me and to understand people yeah. better. So I can't, I can't argue with that. You know, with, with your mission in that, and and uh, I. I really appreciate you coming on the show to talk about this, and, and uh, I, I again uh, apologize if we uh, if if you felt abused in any way, and, <laughs> and uh, I'm I'm really glad that we were able to uh, uh, you know talk about it, and, and uh, I, you know I I, uh, I feel like I learned a lot, so <laughs>
2: cool. Well, I'm re- I really appreciate you having me on. This was this was really fun, and it was it was good to hash out a lot of this stuff. Really great, thank you. <laughs>
1: Let me thank Gene once again for coming on the show. Uh, I was really thrilled to be able to do this interview. It was a really different kind of approach than we normally take towards an interview, but um, I really got a lot out of it. I hope you guys did too. And that is it for this week for Adam Ruins Everything, the podcast. We'll be back in just two weeks, so please tune in. Our producer is Shara Morris, and if you like this show, please be sure to tell a friend about our podcast and subscribe to us on iTunes or your favorite podcast app. And please don't forget to leave us a rating wherever you subscribe. It really helps us out. And again... Guys, don't let me forget, Adam Ruins Everything is coming back to True TV with a big new season. 16 episodes we got coming for you. They start July 11th at 10 p.m. Eastern, 9 p.m. Central on True TV. And in the meantime, you can find full episodes at TrueTV.com slash Adam Ruins or the Watch True TV app. Until then, we'll see you next time. Bye, guys. MaximumFun.org. Comedy and culture. Artist owned. Listener supported.